Let's pray. Father God, as we come to this time now, as we open up your word and we seek to learn from it, we pray that you may teach us. Father, as we come to the book of Judges, a book that was written a long time ago, help us, Lord, I guess not to commit the mistake of chronological snobbery and think that our generation is so much superior, but instead, Lord, help us to learn lessons from the Israelites. Help us to learn about who you are, but also who we are. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you point us to your son, Jesus, the ultimate judge, the ultimate rescuer. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. So, it's great to be here. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors. I'd love to meet you if I'm yet to meet you over dinner afterwards, which uh, should be a good time. Uh, hopefully, you guys are excited. We've got four weeks of commissioning, which I'm looking forward to. And tonight was the first one with the Reeves. And so, I hope you're excited about that, but also hope you're excited about Judges and what is a terrible story, which we'll go through tonight. Uh, but before we get to the story, um, I wonder if you've ever had time where you thought you knew someone, but you really didn't. You know, maybe you're like, we're at a work conference and you thought you knew Bob, you thought that was Bob and you went up to him and you like hit Bob on the back and then Bob turned around and you're like, oh, that's not Bob and you have this awkward interaction. Or maybe the supermarket, you're like, oh, that's my friend Anna and you go up to her and she's like, hey, Anna, and then it's, it's not and the stranger looks at you weirdly. Or, or maybe you've done that thing where you're on the side of the road and like a car goes past and you know that car and you're like, oh, that's my friend and so you wave and you realize it's not your friend and so you just do that awkward, ah, oh, yeah, put your head down, all is okay. Um, a few years ago, I went to uh, Bible College, which is like university, uh, but for pastors. Uh, and I was in the library one time, and I saw this woman, and I, and I was 100% sure that this woman's name was Kim. And I was 100% sure that this woman named Kim had a daughter called Fiji. And so what I did is I went up to Kim, and I said, hey, Kim, how's Fiji going? To which she looked at me weirdly and said, did you just ask me how's the country going? And I was just like, yeah. Yeah, here's my book. Uh, she scanned it. I just walked away awkwardly. One of the most awkward moments in my life. Like, I wonder if you had moments where you think you know someone, but you really don't. Maybe it's a stranger, or maybe it's actually a friend. Like, like maybe it's a friend, and you think you know them, but like you really don't. Like you find out some more details about them, and you're like, what? Let me give you an example, right? Like, so Rod Bailey, I don't know where Rod is, but he's our, our senior pastor uh, here. Uh, and I thought I knew Rod pretty well until I learned this fact about him. You see, uh, we have church services in the morning, and then we obviously have a church service here at night. And I thought Rod being our senior pastor, our godly leader, that between the church services would spend time prayer, in prayer or fasting or just like reading the Bible from cover to cover or exegeting the Hebrew and Greek, just like devoting, you know, spending lots of time to the Lord until he, he confessed to me that actually when he goes home on Sunday afternoons, he just opens up his iPad and just like pray, plays games on his iPad. I was like, no, Rod Bailey, surely not. Or maybe another example is uh, Beck Devitt. She's a, a lovely mum at the back. She's written a, a book recently on homeschooling. You know, just a lovely, sweet woman. Uh, when I told her that I got a motorbike, she's like, oh, I used to have a motorbike. I'm like, what? No way. Oh, then on top of that, our singer, Mitch Cullen, who was up the front, did a great job before. You know, he looks like this hipster dude, like, you know, he's just, you know, really well presented, like, he's a graphic designer, works in the city, right? You know, when I just, until I discovered he's not that cool, actually, but instead, when Star Wars is going to come out later this year, he's going to dress up with all his friends and go to the premiere. I was just like, what? Or what about Pete Reeve, our bearded piano player, when he told me that his favorite TV show is The Bachelor? And I'm like, What? That could be a lie, but the rest are not. The rest of the telling the truth. You see, it's weird when you when you when you find out things about someone which you didn't actually thought that you know. And see, tonight we're looking at the story of Jephthah, the judge of Jephthah, 
And what we're going to learn about this judge tonight is that he thought that he knew God. But unfortunately, he didn't know the God of the Bible as well as he thought. You see, maybe you never heard of Jephthah, maybe you never heard of this story in the book of Judges, and there's one reason, and that's because the story is horrible. It's horrible. Like, like, this is not a story tonight which you would read out to your children at bedtime. Like, I've never seen a cartoon movie about this. We didn't have the whole Bible reading, but as you'll come to see, this is a horrific story. You see, the judges were meant to be military leaders that were meant to rescue God's people from military oppression. And, and that's what Jephthah did. But then he led his people back into oppression when he oppressed his people. The judges were also meant to be spiritual leaders. They were meant to, I guess, free God's people from their idolatry and worship of other gods. And he does that. But then instead of pointing them to Yahweh and worshipping him the way that Yahweh wants, he points them to worship Yahweh like the other Canaanite gods. This is a terrible story. And here's the reality is Jethro didn't know the God of the Bible as well as he thought. His culture, especially of violence, shaped his perception of God. And if I can be so honest, I think sometimes that happens to us as well. Not that it's through the culture of violence, but our culture around us. It's for those reasons why we need to look at this story. And we need to learn lessons from Jephthah and the story that is presented. And so let's dig into it. And let's look at verses 6 to 9 from chapter 10. And it should come up on the screen. Let me read it out to us. It says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asheroths. And the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Israel, was in great distress." Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. You see, what you see throughout the book of Judges in these stories is you see, to begin with, rebellion. We've seen this time and time again. And what you see here is, to be honest with you, complete rebellion. You see, I wonder if you picked up on here, the Israelites are worshipping seven different gods. In the Bible, the number seven basically is a metaphor for completion. And so what's going on here is that the Israelites have completely abandoned the Lord and are doing evil things. And what we see is that God responds with retribution, that God is angry, and that God responds to intense rebellion with intense punishment, as there's double oppression from two different nations. Now, let's just stop for a second and think about the anger of God. I know that's not a popular topic. I know our culture doesn't like it. But what the Bible teaches, actually, that God's anger is rooted in his love. That because he loves us, he'll also be angry when we rebel against him. But also, just think about that for a moment. Like Now this is, I think, our seventh week in the book of Judges, and we've seen this pattern over and over again. These people rebel, and then God gets angry. Like, like I don't know about you, but like if I was God, and, and if you were all you guys here were my people, like I would get angry at you maybe the first time you rebel, maybe the second time you rebel, maybe the third time. But after that, I'll get apathetic. I just will start to not care. I'll get detached from you guys but not our good God. The depth and longevity of his anger demonstrates the greatness of his love, which is incredible, which is incredible. But what we see here, unfortunately, is that the idolatry of the Israelites leads them to actually worshipping the gods of the nations that are oppressing them, which brings us to our first lesson of tonight, which is this. Only God can satisfy the first, our thirsty souls. Only God can satisfy 
our thirsty souls. Question, what idol has the affections of your heart and distracts you from worshipping Jesus? If you're wondering what is an idol, is this something that you, a statue that you bow down to? Well, it could be that, but it could be something else. It doesn't have to be external, it could also be internal. But mainly it's something that you go to for ultimate joy and ultimate significance. Most of the time, idols are good things that you turn into God things. To give you an example, it could be that you want to be successful in your job, but you feel like if you're not successful in your job, then you will not be significant. Or maybe it could be that you desire to have academic recognition, because if you don't have it, then you wouldn't be worth anything. Or you could think, I must be in a relationship, because if I'm not in a relationship, then I know that I'm not someone who's worthy to be loved. Or maybe you think, I need to get that promotion or that job, because if I don't, then I'll not be joyful. All these things are not bad things, but we turn them into God's. Instead of looking to God for ultimate joy and significance, we turn to idols and they enslave us, just like they did to the Israelites. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says this, which is a good warning for us. Jeremiah says this, he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own citizens, broken citizens that cannot hold water. You see, church, I hope we come to understand this, that all other wells will disappoint. They will not satisfy. You see, the Israelites are on this vicious cycle of constantly going back and back to these gods that would not satisfy their desire, would not satisfy their thirsty souls. And we can do the same thing. We can get stuck in this cycle and we can think, I'll only be happy until I grab that one thing. And then when we get that one thing, we obsess about how can we get more of it or we freak out if we're going to lose it. No man, no woman, No job, no relationship, no career will satisfy you like God will. Like Jesus will. Lesson number one, only God can satisfy the thirst of our souls. Only God can satisfy our thirsty souls. That is what we see here. We see rebellion, we see retribution. But let's continue, let's see what happens. And let's look at verses 10 to 14. It says this, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Monites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. For the first time in the book of Judges, the Israelites cry out, and God doesn't respond with yes, but he responds with no. He responds with no. You see, God knew that they were coming to all the gods, crying out to every single God, just asking for them to get out of trouble. And God wasn't impressed by that. He saw through their shallow repentance. He saw through their shallow cry out for help. And they didn't realize that actually God is the only true God. And he doesn't appreciate being one of many that is called out to. You see, what God understood here is that they didn't want to worship him, but they wanted to use him. Which brings me to lesson number two. God doesn't want to be used. He wants to be worshipped. God doesn't want to be used. He wants to be worshipped. Which brings me to my question. Are you here tonight to use God or to worship Him? Are you here tonight to use God or to worship Him? Now maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know which one is which? Well, let me try and help your heart discern this. I wonder if your heart plays this game where you have a tendency to negotiate with God where you say, well, I'll make these sacrifices as long as God gives me something in return. 
You see, I'll, I'll go to church, I'll go to home group, I'll read the Bible, I'll put money in the offertory, as long as God gives me the real thing that I want in my heart. As long as God blesses me. Like, I wonder if we play this game where we, where we try and get God to be in line with our plan for our life and the things that we want to achieve and the things that we want to accumulate in this life. Now, let me give you a bit of a tangent here. The Bible does teach us that there is joy in obedience. The Bible does teach us that there are many spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. But what the Bible teaches us is not to pursue the gifts, but instead to pursue the giver and to worship him. For the reality is, as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. Like, we don't, we don't deserve anything. You see, when you come to understand the reality of your sin, that will humble you and will help you realize that you can't negotiate with God. You can't bribe Him. He, he doesn't use a merit reward system. He's not like Santa if you're naughty or nice. But instead, God is a God of grace and of mercy. And when you come to understand that, you realize that He's deserving to be praised, not to be used. You see, Israel thought that God was like the other gods. You make a sacrifice, and then the God will bless you. But they forgot that their God was different. That God doesn't want to be used. He wants to be worshipped. And so let's have a look at verse 15 to 16, where Israelites, they finally start to get it. It says this, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do of us whatever you think is best. But please, rescue us now. And then they got rid of foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. You see, this is how you, you see what true repentance is here. You see, as they come and, and they say, God, we're sorry. But on top of that, we're going to get rid of all our other gods. You see, it's important, church, that we grow to understand what true repentance is. Yes, it is confession, but it's more than just confessing of your sin. It's, it's a hatred for what you have done. And it comes at a cost as you let go of your former idols and way of life. You see, it's important that we understand what repentance is. It's important we understand the ugliness of our sin to understand the beauty of the gospel. This is the case when you become a Christian, when you repent and you lay down your idols before him, but it's also the case every day as you live as a Christian and grow your zeal for him. You repent of your sin with confession and contrition and you ask for God's help to follow him. So with those lessons in mind, let's get introduced to our judge of the night, Jephthah. Let me read to you verses, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, 7. It says this, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are a son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Or to contextualize it, he became a gangster. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? You see, what's going on here is that Jephthah was a rejected man. He was an illegitimate son, born of a prostitute. So the legitimate sons who cared about their inheritance kicked him out of the lands. And as a result, he became a gangster. He became a man that was accustomed to violence. While meanwhile, his other brothers were accustomed to counting their inheritance. And so they were, I guess, sissies. And so when violence comes, they turn to their brother who they kicked out and they asked for his help. They humbly come before him with their tail between their legs and say, help us. And he responds... Just like God responded to Israel, 
you don't really want me. You just want to use me. You don't really care about me. You just care about what I can give you. And so like Israel with God, Gilead says to Jephthah, no, no, please, we will submit to you. Just come and rescue us. And so what happens? Well, we didn't read out the, the Bible passage to you. It was too long. But basically, he actually responds in diplomacy to begin with, which is quite a shock for a warrior like him. He actually uh, writes, gets, sends a messenger to the king of the Ammonites and basically says, hey, why are you attacking us? Like, what's going on here? And they basically reply and say, you're in our land. Get out. And so he decides to write a three-point essay in response. It's quite well argued. I'm quite impressed by it. And so let me tell you the points, just in summary. Uh, basically, what Jephthah says to the king is, well, firstly... Actually, we took the land from the Amorites, not from the Ammonites. Now, I know you're like, what? They sound very similar. They are, but basically what he's saying is we took the land from someone else, not from you. So get off your high horse. It's not your land in the first place. But then secondly, he also said, look, we took the land in the first place because the Amorites were actually aggressive towards us. We just wanted to wander through the land, but they attacked us, and so we beat them, and then we took their land. And then thirdly, the way what he responded to this king was, if this land really belongs to you and is a gift from your God... Well, then why don't you come and take it back? Which is a bit provoking. And then this is what happens. Verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message. Jephthah sent him, no surprise. And then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Misbath of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah, this is important, made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands... Whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me when I return and triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went out to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from the Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Keramin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizbath, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing in the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither had son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my, no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you promised. And then the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I'll never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he vowed. And she was a virgin. It's not really a story that you read to your kids before they go to bed at night. Look, before we learn from Jethro and his horrible mistake here, it's important that we ask a few questions to understand what's going on here and why did he make this vow and, and why did he go ahead with this promise. And so the first question that maybe some of you are wondering is, did he intend on making a human sacrifice in the first place? Like maybe he was picturing a lamb, you know, maybe he was picturing a goat, but not necessarily a human. Well, unfortunately, he actually was intending to sacrifice a human. You see... What we know is that back then, animals were not kept inside people's houses. So that little cute puppy dog or cat that you have in your house, you know, that's a new thing to society. But on top of that, the Hebrew word here for meat, which in the English, actually connotes a human encounter. And so what we know is that Jephthah intended to carry out a human sacrifice. It's just he probably didn't intend it for it to be his daughter. He thought maybe it'd be one of his servants, or maybe one of his generals or soldiers in his army. So the first question is, did he intend 
to human sacrifice? And the unfortunate answer is yes. The second question then is why? Why did he make this horrible vow to God? We've got two answers to this. Number one, because this is how you worshipped pagan gods. This is how you, you worship pagan gods, especially the Canaanite gods. And, and he thought that the God of the Bible was like these Canaanite gods. He thought that you offer sacrifices to them and then they give you favor. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the favor. Or the greater the favor you're after, the greater the sacrifice you need to give. The tragedy of this story is how Israel has fallen so badly. They don't even understand who their God is and his character. They don't understand that in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that God hates human sacrifice. He deplores it. But this is how you please pagan gods. But then secondly, Jephthah was desensitized to violence. You see, human life in his day was cheap, in particular when it came to his idol of military dominance. This may seem horrific to us, but that's because violence is no longer an idol of choice for us. And so that's why he made this vow. But you would have noticed that it was two months between when he made the vow and then when he committed the act of sacrificing his daughter. Which begs the question, why keep the vow? You know, like for two months, he would have been going to sleep, thinking about what is going to happen. So why did he go ahead with this? With his only child, his only daughter? Well, he kept the vow for the exact same reason that he made it. He had no concept of the grace of God. Absolutely none. He thought there's no way that God would have graciously helped me gain that victory. It was all about my sacrifice. That's why we won the war. You see, church, should Jephthah have kept this vow? No, not at all. You see, the tragedy is, is that God had already decided to save his people before he made such a terrible vow. Which brings us to our third lesson tonight. That God's grace is a radical concept. That God's grace is a radical concept. Church, I wonder how well we understand grace. Like we hear it over and over and over again, but I wonder if we generally understand it. Like how often do we make vows to God? How often do we make deals with God? You see, there's only one deal that God will ever make with you. His righteousness for your submission. That's it. That's the only deal. Our hearts are hardwired towards works righteousness. Our hearts are hardwired to trying to work to gain acceptance, not to just humbly accept it. Every religion in the world teaches this, that if you obey, you will be accepted. Jesus teaches you are accepted. Why don't you go obey? As Martin Luther says, he says this, he says, The law says do, but it's never done. The gospel says believe, and it's already done. God's grace is a radical concept. It's hard for Israel to process, but it can also be hard for us. Which is why we cannot forget the cross. We cannot forget the ultimate judge and savior that came for us. Jesus, who, like Jephthah, was despised and rejected by his brothers, but then died so that we may be accepted before God. He didn't offer someone else as a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice so we may own favor with God. You see, Jephthah was the savior of Israel, but he was a broken savior like all other judges. But Jesus was the perfect savior who died for the broken God's grace, it's a radical concept. It's a radical concept that our world cannot process and at times our own hearts can't. And so with this reminder of God's grace, let's, let's head back to the story and think about application here. 
And unfortunately, this act of him sacrificing his daughter is not the only terrible act that Jephthah did. I don't have time to read it out to you, but the next six verses, let me explain what happens, is um, after this, I guess, dramatic battle and victory that Jephthah had, the Ephraimites, or sorry, the Ephraimites, sorry, the better way to pronounce it, uh, came towards Jephthah and basically said, hey, why didn't you invite us into the battle so we got the glory? Right? Maybe you remember these guys. The same thing happened with Gideon only a few chapters earlier. But uh, because Gideon was a coward, he responded with persuasion, whereas Jephthah is a warrior, so he responds with war. And what happens is he ends up killing 42,000 Ephraimites, 42,000 Israelites, 42,000 of his brothers. It begins with him saving his people from oppression. It ends with him oppressing his people himself. Which brings us to lesson number four. Our culture influences us more than what we think. Our culture influences us more than what we realize. And so question, how has the culture around you shaped your perception and understanding of God? You see, it may not be violence for us. You all seem like pretty peaceful people. But maybe it could be your attitude towards sex or money that lives alongside your other beliefs when it comes to God. You see, we can look at Jethro in disgust and think, I would never do this. What a deplorable man. This culture is so behind. When the reality is, is our culture offers sacrifices all the time for the idols we bow down to. Men and women try to pursue sexual fulfillment and true love by leaving their families at the altar. Men in particular can neglect their wife and kids by working ridiculous hours and just saying, well, if I, if I want to get ahead in this industry, this is what I've got to do. Or to be more poignant in our time, when women are pregnant, they can also sacrifice children for the idol of convenience. And on and on I can go. You see, before we shake our heads at bewilderment at Jephthah and think this culture is so behind times, Our culture is not as sophisticated as you may think. Which begs the question, how can we prevent ourselves from being influenced from our culture and changing our understanding of who God is? Well, as as lame as it sounds and as a popular application as it is, we've got to know the scriptures, which teaches us about our glorious God. We need to open it. We need to read it. We need to read it with others. We need to study it. We need to learn about our glorious God to prevent us being influenced from the culture around us. Our culture influences more than we realize. And lesson number five and the final one, our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. Question, what would be the cost of your idolatry? What would be the cost of your idolatry? You see, for Jephthah, his idol of violence cost the life of his daughter as well as 42,000 fellow Israelites. What would be the cost of our idolatry? What will be the consequences to our families and to those around us, to our church? This week I've been reflecting and realizing that my idolatry reflects and impacts, sorry, my wife, as well as my kids, as well as my home group, as well as this church. Our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. And so may we ask God to shine light into our blind spots to the idols that we're clinging on to that are stealing our affections for Christ. This is a pretty harsh and horrible story. I wish I could end on a celebrating note, but I don't think that's appropriate. Instead, I hope that we may learn from Jephthah, and that we may learn from his mistakes, 
that maybe we realize that our idolatry has devastating consequences, but then in reverse, we may also realize that our worship can have a huge impact on those around us. That actually, instead of being influenced by culture, we can influence culture by pointing to them what it looks like to follow and worship our King, Jesus. And so that's my hope and that's my prayer, is that we may learn lessons from these guys, that we may respond in true repentance, that we may let go of our idols that do not lead to joy, and we may cling to our Savior who does. And that we may worship Him all our days and show culture what it looks like to find joy in Him. And so church, I'm going to pray, and I want you to reflect for 30 seconds before I do actually, and then after that, the band's going to go up and sing. And so now's the time for us to reflect and think, what, are, what, are the, what elements of our culture is influencing us? What idols in our hearts do we need to let go of? I want you to, to confess that and repent of that. And then when the band gets up, I want you to sing. And I want you to sing praises to our good and glorious God, because your worship matters and it influences those around you. How about I pray in 30 seconds, spend some time reflecting. Father God, at times we think we can know you and your character, when at times we actually don't know you fully. Lord, I pray that by your scriptures you may teach us. Lord, I pray that we do not take grace for granted, but Lord, instead we may grow in our understanding of it. And Lord, that such understanding may lead to humility, where we praise you and thank you for your goodness rather than try to negotiate with you for more. Father, I pray that you remind our hearts that there is joy in obedience and in following you, that only you will satisfy, that all other wells are empty and dry. Lord, I pray that you help us to seek you for ultimate significance and joy. Lord, as our culture seeks to persuade us and influence us as to who you are, may we seek your word and may we see who you genuinely are. And Father, as we seek and attempted towards idolizing other things, remind us that that has devastating impacts. And on the flip of that, remind us, Lord, that our worship can influence our culture and those around us and can be a blessing to so many people. And so, Father, I pray that you forgive us of the times where we worship other things and that you help us to worship and pursue you. Lord, I pray now as we come to sing songs to you that we may sing songs to you because you are worthy of praise and that you desire to be worshipped and not to be used. And so please be with us by the power of your spirit to do this, not just tonight, but all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.